I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Way Up North podcast. My name is Erin Bishop. I am the event planner for Way Up North and also this season's podcast host. So that means I get the fun job of chatting with some of our presenters before the big day to give you guys a bit of an idea who they are, what they're about, and what to expect from them in Stockholm. So today we are going to chat with Caroline Tran. Welcome, Caroline. Um, Why don't we jump right in with you telling us a bit about who you are and what it is that you do. Um, so I'm Caroline. I've this is like my tenth year ish doing this. I've stopped counting. <laughs> um, prior to this, I was actually a high school physics teacher. Amazing. <laughs> and um, I think perhaps this may resonate with a few folks, but you know, I I come from like very traditional Asian family, and so when I wanted to do something creative, that was not an option for my parents. You know, those are hobbies. That's great. You know, you take piano lessons, you take dance class and art class and all that, but that's all just for hobbies. So come to think of it, I don't know why they push that so hard when they would never let you go into that professionally. That's a good point. That's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, and like, throughout high school, every one of those aptitude tests I took always said to go into something creative. And, um, but it was not an option for my parents. They wanted me to go into engineering. Okay. And so I decided that I'd be a little rebellious. And instead of majoring in engineering, I'd go physics because maybe there was a little, that it was more abstract and I don't yeah. know, maybe more creative perhaps. Definitely. So, um, I did that. And then into when I got to upper division, I realized, okay, this is definitely not what I want to do. Like it, it was fun in the beginning. I loved my high school physics teacher. I love the basic physics stuff. But once we got into like real abstract stuff, I just didn't see any practical purpose. So I took a minor in art and that's how I discovered photography, design, Photoshop, web design, and, um, and so forth. And I still laugh when I think back to my last semester in undergrad, my photography instructor was like, Hey, so what are you doing next year? You're graduating this year. And I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to go to UCLA and get my master's in education. And he's like, Oh, cool. You know, I actually teach photography classes there, um, through extension. Like you should just come and audit my classes. I won't even charge you for it. I think you have so much potential and, you know, I'd really love to explore this further with you. And I kind of chuckled. I'm like, I'm going to be a grad student. I don't have time for hobbies anymore. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and so that was the end of it. I put my camera down after that, went through two years of grad school. And th- throughout it all, I knew that I liked teaching. I love teaching. And 
Um, but I'd never saw it as something that I would do for the rest of my life. Um, mainly because I'm not a morning person. So teaching high school, like I was barely able to wake up for high school when I was a student. And now it's like having to go in professionally. I just couldn't do it. So I knew that I wanted out at some point. So I was always looking for a business to do something creative. And I tried many other things. Like I've tried, um, I tried starting my own fashion line. Like I was sewing myself and just posting them on the internet. Um, I started, um, mostly just selling like the little arts and crafts that I was creating. We didn't have Etsy back then, but if there was Etsy, that's what I would be doing now. Um, and through that experience, what I learned, I started analyzing different companies a lot. And what I learned was, why, why are some companies able to sell their designs for hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, and other companies are selling it for time? Um, and, you know, I was looking at that. I don't think it has much to do with the design. So as I started comparing tracking more, I realized, you know, how it's marketed makes a huge difference. And with that photography, like how the products are photographed makes such a huge impact. Um, something that's photographed to look more boutique and high end is able to demand way more money than, you know, something that's like taken from a little point and shoot. So that's when I picked up the camera again and started trying to shoot better product photos of my, of my designs. And that's how I ended up falling back in love with photography. Awesome. It was a big, it was a big round circle journey, but there you are. Yeah. <laughs> and so how did, how did that, business attempt. how did that progress from you were taking shots of, of your designs to, to where you are now? Um, I feel like overall, like my, my aesthetic, you know, obviously I think everyone has a certain perspective and so that hasn't changed, but I think it's allowed me to really hone in on, on my look and my style. I think going through, you know, the, I had three failed businesses before starting this one. And I'm grateful that I did because I got to make all the mistakes on the other ones. And some of the mistakes I learned through the other ones was um, when you don't commit to a style, when you're trying to copy what everyone else is doing, you know, you see, oh, this brand's doing this. Okay, I better do that too. Oh, that brand's doing that. Okay, I better do that too. Um, And not staying true to your authentic voice. So um, that's what I learned through the, when I was trying to sell my sewing stuff. And I think that helped me start this business because I was able to really just focus on my own style, my own inner voice, and not worry about what everyone else is doing. Awesome. And then I think marketing was the big thing that I learned through the other business as well. Just how you position yourself, what you're saying about yourself, and only putting out work that really represents you and your voice and not what you think um, people want to see. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also there's, I feel like with younger businesses of, of any kind really, but certainly with photography, there's there's sort of an urge to just share everything that you're doing mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because you just want to have content and you want to, you know, show that you're working. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes I definitely learned that, you know, the hard way too, is if you show everything, you know, that what you show is what you're going to attract back. And so you really, yeah. you really need to be careful if you don't want to be doing like 
rustic DIY backyard weddings, then you probably mm-hmm. shouldn't post those all over your <laughs> website yeah. and your social media because <laughs> it really does come back. And as soon as you tweak what you put out there, it really affects, you know, what what people are drawn to you. Yes. How would you describe your style now? Like what what do you think draws your clients to you? I think people see my work as genuine and authentic. Um, there's definitely like a very soft, feminine, ethereal touch to it in terms of the looks. But I think what most people, like most of my clients, I think what draws them to me is um, how personable I am and how I'm able to bring out people's emotions and um, their their inner thoughts and feelings. So a lot of people will say when they look at my work, they feel like they know the person or there's a story behind it. It's there's more depth. So um, tell us a bit about sort of what what your life is like uh, beyond just being a photographer, your family, what you like to do, anything like that. I'm a mom of two. I have two boys and they keep me plenty busy. Um, they're three and six. So they're still, um, they're fun. They're, but they also like still very dependent on me. The, and I feel like, um, the, the struggle that I'm going through my, like my mom issue right now is like my first grader. It's like, I don't know how to keep up with all his homework. Um, (laughs) I feel like, I feel like until a child can manage his own homework, he should, he just shouldn't have homework. That's fair. It's a job for you. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, and now I have to add, I feel like I'm adding student to my plate too. (laughs) What does a typical day look like for you? Um, I drop off the kids in the morning and then I do have them in school, like for a full work day. So I have a full, I can actually get work done while they're in school. So while they're in school, um, social media, emails, like website, and then I fit my shoots as much as I can. I try to fit my shoots while the kids are in school. And I think this was a very intentional move on my part when before having my first son, I was shooting about 40 weddings a week and I'm sorry, 40 weddings a year. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You knew what I meant. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I was doing like 40 plus weddings a year. And, um, while being child free, that was fine. But as soon as I got pregnant, I realized, you know, one day he's going to be in school Monday through Friday. And if I'm gone Saturday and Sundays, um, when do I see them? And so at that point I decided to put in more of an effort to build up my business. And so I feel like even though I'm known more as a wedding photographer, and that's probably because that's where I'm more published, Mm -hmm. um, half of my business comes from portraits. And a lot of these comes from following my past bride and grooms through their life. And this is what I'm going to talk about at the conference as well. But um, I've built a business model, basically becoming these people's lifelong photographers and just following them through their journey in life. And the good thing about this is um, these are hot leads in a way, like they are already convinced of me. I don't have to sell myself. So anytime I have like a new, if I come up with like a new, um, promotion, like a new, like it's holiday season time. And, you know, I'm designing this cool holiday set. They, I don't have to convince them that I'm the photographer to use. I just have to convince them that they need holiday card photos. Then they will come to me for it. Yeah. And so it's a great way to bring 
people to keep them coming back after. And so the good thing is like about half of them come back, half of them are new people that I'm recruiting. And so every year the business is growing because of that. And then it also fills up my work week because my portraits are done during, um, during the week while the kids are in school. And so by doing that, I was able to reduce the number of weddings that I do, increase the number of portraits I do. And this way, I feel like there's a much better work-life balance. Yeah, that's excellent. I was going to ask about that. And that's, <laughs> you pre-answered me because as a, <laughs> uh, I'm a wedding planner myself and have no kids and a very tolerant boyfriend. Um, but I feel like I can't even imagine like how you would squeeze time out of life to have a kid and obviously a lot of time, but that's a very good, a very good tip. And it's true that, you know, through the wedding day process, the, the mm -hmm. clients really bond with you and get comfortable mm -hmm. with you. So that does make it easy to, to be their go-to from then on. Yeah. Like, and in your case, it would be like when they start planning their kid's birthday party. Absolutely. And yeah. And that totally happens for us, which is great. <laughs> it is so easy once you know them already. Yeah. Like it cuts out, like, I feel like the hardest part about photographing someone is that rapport you have to build leading up to it, mm -hmm. building that comfort and that trust. And so when you have repeat clients, that part's already taken out and it's, it's just fun. Yeah. You don't have to do the good, good past the not awkward phase, but the experimental phase, I guess. Yeah, I know just what you mean. I recently just did like a portrait shoot with a, a friend of mine who's a photographer who I'm quite comfortable mm -hmm. with as a person. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I was on the other side of his camera, there is sort of a, a warming up mm -hmm. period. And by the end, you know, it, was, it felt supernatural. And I, I did think to myself, if I ever do this again, I'm just going to do it with him because we're yeah. already there. So <laughs> I feel you. Yeah, I okay. think rapport and chemistry is so important. Yes. Um, what about, uh, what? tell us something that might be surprising that we don't know about you. I mean, you did already tell us that, that you were a physics major, so that's something. But <laughs> do you have any like hidden talents or like weird quirks we should know about? So like one of the businesses that I, so I had shared um, one of my failed business, which was, um, like trying to start my own fashion line. But the part that I was a little embarrassed to share in the beginning was the, what led after that was I started collecting these, um, dolls. They originated in the U S but Japan, like re released them. So they were originally like back from the seventies and then they got re-released, but they're these creepy looking dolls that have like really giant head and tiny little bodies. <laughs> and, but when I gave up on trying to sell human clothes, I actually started sewing doll clothes for these dolls. Oh, interesting. And, and what's crazy about them is it was, there was kind of a cult following back then with them. And these dolls would sell anywhere from like 200 to a thousand dollars per doll. And I had maybe a hundred of them wow. and the clothes themselves, like they would sell. And this is specifically where I was really fascinated with the marketing because there were people who were selling clothes for these dolls, like handmade, um, handmade outfits, and they would sell for over a thousand dollars for one outfit. Wow. And, and then, yes, there were companies in China that were putting them out and they were only selling for $10. So that's where I was really fascinated with like, why are some people only getting $10 for this doll dress that, and the dress is literally maybe two inches tall. Like that's it. Yeah. It's that's like, amazing. You would sew it. Like I would 
use my mom's old scrap fabrics. Or when I was sewing human clothes, then the scrap fabrics became the fabrics I would sew the doll clothes with. And I was really fascinated with why were some people able to command like $1,000 plus for an outfit. And so I was able to get my outfits probably up to like five to $800 per outfit at wow. that time. <laughs> and it was cool. Like it was just for me, I think it was just more of the challenge of it. Like, how can I market this and how can I um, present this in a way to try to demand more money for it? And so I thought that was a fun experience. But when people see the dolls, they kind of get creeped out. And it's like you were mentioning about like, I'm not a crazy cat lady. It's like, I think I was like a crazy doll lady. <laughs> Fair. Okay. I'll admit I am a crazy cat lady. Uh, it's true. But that's so funny. What were the dolls called? Now I'm just curious. I feel like we're all going to want to look um, them up. They're, they're called Blythe. B-L-Y-T-H-E. Okay. I'm definitely checking that out later. So how <laughs> did you, how did you, be, you should, how did you get, how did you get into the five to $800 range? Like what was the difference between those thousand dollar people and the $10 people? I think one was exclusivity, right? Like, you know, one of a kind outfits sold a lot better. And I think like all of this translates over to the photography business too. And that's why I'm talking about it. Cause this is where I learned like from firsthand experience. Mm-hmm. Um, when people, I mean, that, that comes down to basic, um, supply and demand as well. Right. So if there's only one outfit, then people are going to be willing to pay a lot more for it. And I think that's the same thing as a photographer. If you're marketing your photography for your art, your work and your eye, you're the only one. Like there's no one, there's no other you. And so as a result, like that will make people value you and pay more for you versus if you treat yourself as a commodity, if you're just a photographer, then yeah, there are millions of photographers. But if you are, you know, Aaron, there's Aaron Bishop, there's only one Aaron Bishop, right? So it's all all about how, um, well, there could be more with the same name, but they're not you. (laughs) No, totally. And it speaks to your point too about how you mentioned earlier, you know, finding your own voice and doing your own thing and not just copying the crowd. Mm -hmm. Um, That that kind of comes into play here too, because if you don't look like everybody else, then that just only adds to your value really. Yeah. Yeah, there are so many that all look the same. True. <laughs> yeah. And then the the other thing that I had mentioned too that makes a big difference is just the photography. It's how you present it. So if it's um if it's photographed cheaply, then it looks cheap, you know. But if you can photograph it more high end, then now it looks like it is worth more. And I think that's the same thing with um with running a photography business. You know, if you're a $15,000 photographer, but you're meeting your clients in like some Starbucks Starbucks. and a strip mall. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Like how 15, like I, if I was a client, I would be thinking people hand over $15,000 to you, like in this environment, like it just doesn't add up. Right. So I feel like your, and your website, you know, if they come to your website and it looks like it was made in 1999 like like really people are paying like it just I think you have to present yourself um like what like the value that you want to be yeah definitely I think that there's a big difference I that I've I lived through that as well where we were meeting people in Starbucks in the early days and then Mm -hmm. same here conversion rate (laughs) once we got an office was like 
night and day. Yes. And it did not take long to realize we were well covering the rent of an office with just the yeah. increase in booking. So I agree. I think when I was the days when I was meeting in Starbucks, um, you know, I was still just starting out and it was fine. It was working fine, but there's definitely a certain, as you increase price, you mm-hmm. hit you hit a certain point where people are just not willing to hand it over at a Starbucks anymore. That's exactly right. <laughs> and there are, I feel like in this day and age, lots of options for mm-hmm. work shares or sharing offices yes. and things that happens a lot up here um, where mm-hmm. people share offices and you know, that that's a really good option for people who are just starting out and feel maybe like they can't have a full-time 24 hour office to themselves is just have a slightly more professional environment to meet yeah. people in, even if it's shared or, or, you know, like a, a, a co-working space where you can book a room or something like that. Right. My very first office um, was shared with three other girls. So there was four of us splitting the rent. So it was it was cheap. I mean, if you add up the cost of meeting up for lunch for all the consultations, it paid for the rent. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get a Starbucks for what you used to be able to. <laughs> right. <laughs> cool. And so you kind of touched on a little bit, but um, one of my questions was, what can we kind of expect from you in Stockholm? Um, I I wanted to share about how, so one statistic that my photo lab was sharing with me that I thought was really astonishing was, um, I think it was like 50 to 60% of photographers go out of business within the first year. And then about 30% make it to the third year but only 2% makes it to the 10th year. Wow. And so I feel like being in my 10th year, and if that if that statistic is true, then I'm part of this 2% and I have a lot, like I would love to share whatever I think has helped me got to this point. And I think for anyone who wants to play the long game and who wants to be in business this long, um, I think there were certain strategic, um, things that I, approaches that I had to make sure that I was going to be in business for the long haul. Um, and one I was sharing was about work, like work-life balance. You know, if you're like, sure, you can charge, you know, a thousand dollars for, for a wedding. And if you shoot a hundred a year, then, okay, you're making six figures, but is that sustainable? Is that realistic? Um, and so just, I wanted to, break down some of the things that I've learned through the years that really helped me prevent burnout, um, increase my, um, increase my salary, so to speak. And, um, and then also just like, because I feel like with this creative business, there's this pull between because we are a service industry as well, but we're also a creative. So how do you serve your clients, but also feed your own creative soul? And so I wanted to just share like things that I've learned along the way to have balance in all those areas. That sounds fantastic. All of the answers to life's big questions with Carolyn Tran <laughs> happening next month. <laughs> Life balance. Um, awesome. And do you ever get, do you still get like nervous before you give talks at all? Or is it just like you're, you're so used to it now that you don't? Oh, I always get nervous. It's like leading up to it. But once like, once, like even today, even before our talk today, it was like anxiety building up, you know, but once we start talking, then it's, then it's 
just flows. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm not scary. This isn't scary. It's just you and me. <laughs> and we'll edit out anything that we don't like. So no fresh. You can't do that in Stockholm, though, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Caroline. It was great to just have a little chat and, and get a sense of, of what you're bringing to the table in Sweden. And we look forward to seeing you on stage. Thank you. Yeah, I look forward to meeting all of you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.